The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you still speak to us today. We thank you that nothing will overcome the plans of your kingdom, not even the gates of hell. And so we pray, Lord, give us expectant hearts that anticipate to hear you speak today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. How do you respond to disappointment? Have you ever felt like just uh, throwing in the towel and giving up? What voices do you find yourself listening to in those moments? In the summer of 2004, a local church had a skateboard park set up in their parking lot during the week. One afternoon, the youth pastor was out there with his mountain bike. The teens had decided to set up a large ramp, but no one wanted to be the first to launch off of it. So the youth pastor, being who he was, decided that he would be the first to give it a go. And it did not end well. The youth pastor went over the handlebars and broke his collarbone. The doctors told him to keep the collarbone completely immobilized for six weeks. After about four weeks, he began to feel better. He didn't heed the medical advice, the voices that would have been given to him. He was not nearly as fastidious about keeping it in a sling. He felt like most 20-year-old young men feel, like he knew his body and he knew what it could do and he knew that it was better. When he went for the follow-up to get the all clear, the doctor told him that the bone had not yet fused because there'd been too much movement. And he needed to put it back into the sling for another six weeks. So I spent 12 weeks in the summer of 2004 in a sling. All because I didn't listen to the voices that mattered and I listened to my own. Listening or not listening can have a huge effect on our lives. Have you ever suffered such disappointment, such frustration, such unrealized expectation that you just wanted to die? Have you ever thought of giving up in ministry, giving up teaching the children on a Sunday morning, giving up being a youth leader, giving up leading a small group because you just didn't feel like you were getting anywhere when it came to the gospel? We constantly face the challenge of overcoming the temptation of giving up in so many different ways. And here in 1 Kings 19, we meet again Elijah, who is a man with a nature like ours. Elijah had listened so well up to this point. In chapter 17, he listened when the Lord took him to the brook where he was fed by ravens. He listened when he went to the town of Zarephath to the widow and to her son. He listened on Mount Carmel at the top in chapter 18 in the confrontation. 
Surely as he ran ahead of Ahab into Jezreel, his hopes ran high. Finally the nation would return to the Lord. The Lord had sent rain. Finally the nation would renew their covenant faithfulness and trust in God's promises again. But that's not what happened. Ahab pulled in, saw Jezebel's light was still on, and crept upstairs. You can almost hear the conversation. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Chapter 19, verse 1. Hope you have your Bibles there in front of you. Darling, today didn't go well. Baal did nothing. Your prophets were useless. Elijah prayed one time, and the Lord sent fire from heaven, and all the people saw it, and they declared that the Lord, he is God. Oh, and by the way, those 850 prophets that you've been feeding and housing and taking care of, yeah, they're dead. And uh, yes, even the, good, the young, good-looking one that you like so much, and to top it all off, it rained. It finally rained. And the worst part of all of it was that that brand new convertible chariot that you gave me, well, I was in that one. And because it hadn't rained for so long, I didn't have the top, and it got ruined. You just imagine that that was something of the conversation. Elijah's downstairs somewhere, and he's hoping beyond hope that with irrefutable evidence, Ahab and the nation would repent, maybe even Jezebel. She would at the very least be relieved of her power and finally be vanquished. And this true troubler of Israel would finally be sent packing. But Elijah learned that day, and so should we, that evidence has its limitations. Evidence does not automatically equal saving faith. It is the Lord alone who changes hearts. The gospel that saves is the same gospel that the Lord uses to harden hearts. This too is the work of the Lord, a work that is sometimes negative, a work that the Bible calls his strange work of judgment. Elijah couldn't see in that moment, he couldn't see that Jezebel's hardening of heart was evidence that God's judgment was falling upon her. And the point here being that God is never inactive. For Elijah is caught up in the clash of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And inevitably, this clash over time will isolate God's people from the world. It can be lonely being a Christian. Elijah is facing these consequences because he is the bearer of God's word. At John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said to his followers, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So Elijah finds himself in a rather perplexing state. Having listened so well to God's voice for so long, a new voice has now entered his head, the voice of Jezebel, when she sends a messenger and says, so may the gods do to me, and more so also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Okay, that is, this is a very not veiled death threat. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba. Uh, the text literally says that Elijah saw what was going on, he got up and he hiked it out of there. Perhaps this is the first clue that he had stopped living by faith and was living by sight. And so he went to Beersheba, which the narrator makes sure we know is not in Israel, but is actually in the land of Judah. 
uh, it's like being in Philadelphia and getting down to Washington, D.C. And when he gets down there, he drops off his servants. And then he decides to carry on for another day into the wilderness. Remember that. And he sits down under a broom tree. You don't need to remember that. And he asks if he can die. He's in good company. Moses asked if he could die. Jonah asked if he could die. Job asked if he could die. And we meet Elijah under the broom tree in the wilderness, broken. All the hopes, all the expectations. And he comes to the, the decision that he is no better than any of the prophets who have come before him. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Uh, it's not the old hymn, take my life, Lord, let it be, consecrated more to thee. It's take my life, Lord, can't you see? There's no one left, please kill me. And the modern version of it goes something to the effect of with the bridge, uh, kill me, I want to die. And he lay down and he slept under this broom tree. But what we need to be careful of is not making this passage a psychological one, but remembering that it is a theological one. Yes, Elijah is broken, and most people want to go after that brokenness and find six steps to getting you out of your funk. But the point is not psychological, it's theological. There is a God who speaks. Do you listen to him? If it was six steps to getting you out of your funk, it would go something like this. Go for a walk, eat some cake, have a sleep, eat some more cake, go for a longer walk. But this time, go for that walk without food for 40 days and 40 nights, which doesn't really make sense. Find a cave, camp out in there, verbalize your frustrations, watch the elements, have some quiet, and voila, you're ready and good to go. We do see that the Lord's work is personal and tender, but we need to be careful of what we see in that personal and tender work. The Lord does not abandon his prophet Elijah in the valley. But he also doesn't grant Elijah what he asks for, that is to die. The Lord still has work for him to do, and so he provides what he needs for the next part of the journey. Look at verse 5. He lay down and he slept under the broom tree, and a messenger came and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there was cake baked on a hot stone in a jar of water, and he ate and he drank and he slept again. And then the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This isn't your resting place, Elijah. You've got somewhere else to be. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. We could easily sympathize with Elijah's despair grounded in his unfulfilled expectations. He thought that after all that had taken place on Mount Carmel, there would finally be national renewal. Uh, there would be national repentance, but there's no revival. There's no cultural renewal. And all that he finds is this feeling of isolation and abandonment and betrayal, and he fears for his very life. But we see in that moment that the Lord comes to him and reveals himself to him in a most personal and tender way and provides what Elijah needs for the next part of the journey. And so he get up, gets up and he departs and he goes to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now what you need to understand that we've now gone from Philadelphia to Washington DC to Raleigh. All right, that's the distance that we've covered. 
And Mount Horeb is in actual fact Mount Sinai. Yes, the same Sinai that the people of Israel came to in the Exodus. The Sinai that Moses went up to and received uh, the covenant of God, the two uh, stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And when Elijah arrived, he went into literally the cave, that is most likely the cleft in the rock that the Lord had put Moses into. What you see here is the backwards journey of Israel to the place where God had lost spoken and revealed himself and covenanted with his people. Elijah is going back. And there the word of the Lord came to him and asked him, and you gotta be careful about what is the emphasis of this question. I think the emphasis is on the word here. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing at this mountain? What are you looking for? And Elijah said, verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah seems to be coming to this mountain to hear another word, a new word. Lord, do you have another plan? Because this plan hasn't worked. The people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altar, and killed your prophets. And I'm the only one left. Now, I don't think that Elijah's quite in the place to work out if he is the only one left. But as far as he can tell, that's the mental place that he finds himself in. This is the same mountain that while Moses was at the top, the people make a golden calf and start worshiping it as though it was God. In other words, the people of Israel have always had an idolatry problem. We always as human beings want to worship not the true God. And so Elijah says, listen, this isn't working. What else have you got? And the Lord graciously gives Elijah what he came looking for, which was the spectacular, but he also doesn't. The Lord says, verse 11, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the winds, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. The earthquake, the wind, and the fire are completely ineffective. They don't change Elijah one single bit. The earthquake, the wind, the fire, they are powerless and empty. Three times we're told that the Lord was not in them. He was not in them. He was not in them. And if you're not sure about that, the Bible interprets it and proves it for us because immediately after the tornado and the earthquake and the fire, the Lord asks Elijah the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the exact same answer, identical. I've been very jealous for the Lord of God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The spectacular did absolutely nothing. Elijah is unchanged. Now at the end of the spectacular, we read that uh, there came uh, the sound of a low whisper, a gentle whisper, an audible silence. Uh, one translation which many of us might be familiar with if we've been in Christian circles for a long time is a still small voice. 
And, and I just want to pause here for a second and say that uh, that is a, a dangerous and even times unhelpful translation uh, because it says something to the effect of, well, what you need, you don't need the spectacular. You need to just be quiet and listen for the still, small voice of God to pop into your head, to sort of have some kind of mystical experience. But that isn't what happens to Elijah, because even after uh, the thin sound of silence, uh, the drawn-out thinness, the dead quiet, Elijah is still unchanged. That's all part of the same thing. So, so what is it that Elijah heard? What was this perceptible silence, this drawn-out thinness? Well, it wasn't a voice that he needed to hear in his head. Can you imagine, based on the context of this, how unhelpful it would have been for Elijah to just hear a voice in his head? He would have still been singing that hymn, Take My Life. Elijah comes out of the cave. God asks him the question again. And we're left wondering, what does it all mean? That thin, drawn-out silence means that there's no new message, Elijah. There's no plan B. There's no new covenant. I didn't start over with Moses, and I'm not starting over with you. I am the God who speaks. I have given you my message, and you need to go back and finish the work that I set out for you to begin with the exact same message. God had given Elijah a message for the people of Israel and for the whole world, and Elijah had not been impressed because it wasn't successful enough, it wasn't big enough, the numbers were not working out, it was not powerful enough, it was not changing everybody, the city had not been reformed. Nevertheless, the Lord wants him to stay with the message. Just as you and I might feel that the work of the gospel in the world is weak, and feeble, and God says to us, no new message. Just keep on proclaiming my word. Stay with the gospel. The temptation is to always go looking for the power, to go and find the silver bullet. The temptation is to try and find a way to impress the world, to discover new things that will finally work when the OG doesn't appear to be working anymore. The OG is original, just by the way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception. We don't distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel was veiled to Jezebel, as it were. We think maybe if we can provide miracles, maybe if we provide the supernatural, or maybe if we pursue all sorts of degrees, uh, maybe if we can show the world how smart we are, and then we discover that the church is dying by degrees. Uh, what if we just did the what the world wanted us to do? Then they will love us if we value what they value, but then we discover that they still don't. What if we came up with clever strategies to win the world, to win the city? No, the power is not found in those. It is found in the word of God. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure 
in jars of clay to show that in this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that in his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And friends, I hope that you will realize what a relief this is because there is not anybody in the whole world who has more word than you. If you have a Bible, then you have the word of God. The theological point is that God still speaks today. Are you listening to him? There are no secret weapons. There are no secret methods of winning the world. The hungrier that you are for the word, the more you will devour it. And so God speaks again, and this is the message that he gives to Elijah. Go and return through the wilderness the way you came, back to where you came from with the message that I first gave you. As you go, I want you to anoint a prophet, a king, and a leader. And Elijah goes back, and as he goes back, he almost immediately anoints Elisha. But he doesn't actually anoint the other people as far as we can tell, as we were told in the Bible. Because the Lord here is speaking to the long process of his plan in the world. God is speaking to the prophetic office. He's basically saying, begin again, stop worrying, start doing what you were doing at the first, keep being faithful, and someone else further down the track will do the next part, and someone else will do the next part, and someone else will do the next part. God is the one who has the whole thing worked out because it's his plan and he has it covered. Elijah, you might think that you were alone, but I have it all figured out. And look at verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bound, bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God will always keep his work of salvation going. Not even the gates of hell will overcome the work that he is doing in and through and by and with the church. Friends, I hope this morning that you will see that Elijah was never healthier than when he was listening and obeying the word of God. And I hope that you are persuaded this morning that God is a speaking God. The Bible tells us that he has revealed himself in creation, that he has revealed himself in the scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, that he revealed himself in the person of Jesus when he came and dwelt among us. That long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He has revealed himself and we and our great obligation is to listen. It is not to listen to our own brain, which is fallen and limited. It is not to listen to another person who may or may not be helpful. All voices have a place. But the voice that we need to be listening to primarily is the voice of God. And with so many voices vying for our attention, 
in the 21st century, we need to be very careful that the Word of God is governing and controlling the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about our world, the way that we think about ministry, the way that we think about the church. For it is only the Word of God that is able to give us the way and the truth and the life. It is only the Word, the old, old story that provides balance and hope. Many years after this story, when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Friends, we need to know ourselves and the voices that we listen to. Our nature wants the road that comes down from the victory on Mount Carmel. But we must remember that the God who speaks and makes himself known has spoken in these last days finally through his son Jesus Christ. And we have been called to follow Jesus, not as he walks down from Mount Carmel, but as he walks up the road to Calvary. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are still at work in this world. We pray that you would be at work in each one of us. Help us, Lord, to tune out the voices that would lead us astray. And help us, Lord, to hone in on your voice. We give you thanks, Lord, that there is no new message for us to discover, just the same gospel. We give you thanks that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, help us to be a people of the ear and a people of the book. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.